millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. President Abraham Lincoln, Honest Abe, achieved many remarkable things during his short 56 years on Earth. He was the great emancipator who brought about the liberation of enslaved people in the United States, and he preserved the Union by defeating the Confederacy during the American Civil War, two monumental achievements that regularly cement his place as America's greatest president. But how did Lincoln become the great man we know today? How did he rise from humble beginnings to an almost mythical status and cult following? Is the hype justified? Well, I'm your host, James Rogers, and to find out, I've invited Professor Adam Smith onto the Warfare podcast. Adam is the Edward Osborne Professor of US Politics and Political History and the Director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford University in the UK. He is also the author of the book, The American Civil War, and has recently been working on the legacies of Lincoln and his impact on people like British Prime Ministers Lloyd George and Churchill. I know you're going to find this one truly fascinating, so drop us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. But now, here is Adam Smith on The Cult of Abraham Lincoln. Enjoy. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Happy to be here. No, not a problem at all. I'm really keen to take a deep dive into the life and legacies of President Abraham Lincoln. Now, we of course know who this man was. He was the 16th President of the United States, a position that he was elected to in 1860, around a turbulent time for the US as it descended deeper and deeper into civil war. But I'm going to be honest, Adam, I don't know much about Abraham Lincoln apart from that. I don't know anything about his life before his presidency, before his wartime successes as commander-in-chief. And I know very little about his international perception, what his international reputation was like. So perhaps we could start by taking a bit of a deep dive into his early life. Where did he come from? Sure. Well, Lincoln was born on the frontier, as it would then have been thought of. In Kentucky in 1809, he was born into very humble circumstances, Baptist family, never very close to his father, very little formal education, learned to read and write, otherwise was essentially self-taught. Grew up in Indiana, his family moved to Indiana, and then he moved and struck out on his own as a kind of late teenager into the new territory of Illinois. And he tried his hand at various trades. He was a shopkeeper at one point, very memorable for him, with a friend of his, built a flatboat and took some goods down the Mississippi River to New Orleans. When they got to New Orleans, they sold the goods, broke up the flatboat, and then had to walk back. But this was an important experience in his life because he encountered enslaved people. He saw a slave market in New Orleans. This was when he was a young man. And he eventually became a lawyer and moved to the new state capital of Illinois, which was Springfield. Never been east, 
didn't go east until he was elected for one term as a Whig congressman in 1848. Whig with an H, the political party that existed, the opposition party to the Jacksonian, Andrew Jackson era Democratic Party in the 1830s and 40s. The Whigs were keen on what was then called internal improvements. We might now call it infrastructure and banking and industrial commercial development. And Lincoln was very keen on all that kind of thing. He was unusual in his environment. He was a teetotaler in a very hard-drinking, masculine culture. And Illinois was a democratic, capital D, democratic party state as well. So by being a Whig, he was also placing himself as a bit of an outsider. I mean, he was a classic self-made man in the true Victorian sense, not only that he was self-made in the sense that he didn't come from anything and was self-educated and made money, eventually becoming quite well off as a railroad corporate lawyer by the 1850s, but self-made in the Victorian sense that he was constantly trying to make himself become a better, more virtuous person. And so he was always engaged in politics. He had this one term in Congress, as I've said, he served in the state legislature for a number of terms as a Whig, but he had no national image. He wasn't a player on the national political stage at all until in 1858, he became the Senate candidate adopted by the new Republican Party, which is an anti-slavery party, to take on Stephen Douglas, who was a Democratic senator from the state of Illinois, dominant political figure, sort of same generation as Lincoln. They'd known each other for years, but Douglas was this hugely successful national political figure and Lincoln was kind of, I mean, he was a respectable person in the state, but didn't have a national platform. They ran this campaign in 1858 and that got Lincoln known nationally. And that meant that, as you said in your intro, that put him then in a position where he could be adopted as the presidential candidate of the Republican Party in the 1860 presidential elections. This was only the second election in which the Republicans had run a candidate. They'd come surprisingly close in 1856 and in 1860 they won. And this is the critical thing. They won by winning all of the northern states, the free states, and none of the southern states. Lincoln wasn't even in the ballot in the southern states. He's representative of this is anti-slavery party. So this was a sectional, a northern anti-slavery electoral victory. And it was that election victory that precipitated the secession of the southern states and led to the American Civil War. So it was the South rejecting Lincoln, in essence, and his mandate to be president, which was based around abolishing slavery, that causes this giant divide in the United States and starts a civil war. Yeah, that's pretty much. I mean, I would nitpick slightly as a historian, as historians do. He wasn't actually proposing to abolish slavery as such. He just said he doesn't accept the legitimacy of property in man. And so he doesn't want it to be nationalised. He wasn't actually, had no power as president. Congress didn't have any power. The Supreme Court didn't have any power to abolish slavery within South Carolina or Alabama or Mississippi or whatever. It's a state institution in the federal structure. So he wasn't actually saying he was going to abolish slavery. In fact, he was going out of his way to say, well, I couldn't abolish slavery even if I wanted to. But the thing is, everybody knew he did want to, if he could. And he did talk about putting slavery on the course of ultimate extinction. That was the phrase he kept on using. So we don't abolish slavery now. Slavery might still exist in 1950, for all I know. But we want to make clear that eventually it will disappear. And that was enough for the South to say we cannot live in a polity in which the chief executive is saying openly that our major source of our wealth is fundamentally illegitimate. And so first of all, seven and eventually 11 slave states responded to Lincoln's election, as you say, by leaving the Union and setting up an independent confederacy. So this self-taught lawyer, he's pulled himself up by the bootstraps. He's risen to the highest office in the land and found himself in the midst of a civil war. How does that test him? 
Does this make him? What's the medal of Abraham Lincoln? Well, it certainly does test him. There are plenty of photographs of Abraham Lincoln. You look at a photograph of Lincoln in 1860 and look at a photograph of Lincoln in 1865, just before he was shot. So there's a spoiler alert there for any listeners, but he was assassinated, of course, on Good Friday, 1865. But look at how he's aged. Presidents always age in office, but I mean, Lincoln really, really aged in office. Yes, it was, of course, a hugely testing time. Do you know, I'd slightly modify something else you said there. You said he found himself in civil war. I'd make it more active than that. Lincoln chose war. He was not the only person to choose war. I mean, the South seceded from the Union. There are plenty of secession movements in history which don't lead to wars. If Scotland votes to leave the United Kingdom, I'm not going to volunteer to fight for the Union in order to keep Scotland within the United Kingdom, are you? But Lincoln, as the president, with the backing of the great majority of the northern population, chose to put all of the resources of the United States behind the project of violently suppressing this rebellion. So that was a choice he made. It wasn't just something he found himself in. It was an active choice to be a war leader and to lead this effort to crush the rebellion. Well, that's all well and good, but it doesn't mean that you're any good at it. You know, he's a self-taught lawyer, like you say, a self-made man. But that also means that he's a self-taught strategist with no military experience. So where does that leave him? He'd spent a few weeks fighting in the Black Hawk War against Native Americans, where he was elected a captain, but he had no military training Think about mid-19th century America, this was not a very militarised society. It was a society which was very familiar with guns, and it was a society that was quite used to militia training in a broad sense, but not with the kinds of big armies that were created in this war. This was all pretty new in the American experience. It was a very small pre-war professional army, and of course there was West Point, which for a generation had been educating very small classes of officers, right? I mean, we're talking about tiny numbers of people here, but there was this professional army, and of course very large numbers of them, a minority, but very large numbers of them left the United States Army and joined the Confederacy. So you're right, Lincoln didn't know anything about war, he didn't know anything about strategy, he never thought about it before, he never had to think about it before, but in that respect, everybody else was in the same boat. But the thing about Lincoln as a war leader is that he developed a fairly clear strategic understanding. He understood that for the United States to win this war, what they had to do was to destroy the rebel armies. Right? It wasn't about territory. It wasn't even about holding key points. One of the ways that the story of the Civil War is often told, and it has a lot of truth in it, is the story of Lincoln trying and trying and trying to find, and eventually succeeding, in finding a general who understood that basic point, that the true and only target of the United States military effort had to be to destroy the Confederate, the rebel armies. So can we start to think of Lincoln's wartime leadership as commander-in-chief during the Civil War as being someone who pioneered a total war of attrition? Something that we think about in terms of World War I and World War II, but if he really understood that you had to completely destroy the war-making capacity of your enemy and destroy them on the battlefield, then you have to have a total mobilisation of the territory that you're in charge of. Is that something that we can credit Lincoln as pioneering? Well, he didn't do it on his own. I mean, there certainly are historians who've made exact the case that you've made. And you know that it's kind of like a famous old essay exam question, was the American Civil War the first total war? And, you know, we need to bring into this conversation at this point, General Grant, and of course, General Sherman as well. So Grant and Sherman are the two Union generals who eventually, by 1864, Lincoln finds and they implement something pretty close, and in some particular circumstances, exactly what you just outlined there. But they're really feeling their way towards this. And there's a lot of very good reasons 
reasons why that isn't a very comfortable or easy way for the United States to think about how to try to defeat the rebellion. Because after all, you know, Lincoln makes very clear, and all the way through the war, he says again and again, they're not fighting a foreign power. This is not a war on foreign soil. And the aim of the war is to reunite the country, which of course means a hearts and minds strategy, to use an anachronistic phrase. His first most important general in the Virginia theatre, George McClellan, very explicitly tries to fight a hearts and minds strategy. Now, he says he writes a letter to Lincoln in the summer of 1862, in which he basically says, look, we've got to pursue this war according to the highest principles of Christian civilization. We've got to leave the rebels' property intact, and that includes their human property, their enslaved people. We fight their armies, but we fight them in a kind of idealized Napoleonic way in which we sort of fight one day battles and we use bayonet attacks and clever maneuvers and defeat them on the battlefield kind of as gentlemen. And that way we can show them that we have military superiority without destroying their livelihoods and without embittering them for generations and generations. By the time we get to the end of the Civil War and McClellan goes, McClellan's a failure, we have General Sherman pursuing a pretty full-on strategy of destroying the South's capacity to wage war in everywhere, which includes destroying crops, which includes destroying buildings and property of all kinds, in some ways in a very punitive way. But this is never easy. They have the very difficult example of Cromwell in Ireland, a sort of example of really punitive but also counterproductive warfare. And it never sits comfortably with the North to fight this kind of war. It remains really controversial, and not least because as the casualty figures, of course, then rise. So when Grant takes over in the East, in the Virginia Theatre in 1864, the Union Army just keeps on fighting, right? He's got the advantage of men. The North has more men than the South. They can replace their casualties in a way the South can't. And Grant realises this and it's a brutal war of numbers. And in the end, it works. It takes month after month and there's a long, nasty siege outside Petersburg. But the reaction on the Northern Home Front is horrific. The scale of the losses that the North starts to suffer in 1864 is such that by August 1864, Lincoln is certain and with very good reason that he's going to lose re-election. He's up for re-election in November 1864. War is so unpopular. So there's always this question, as there is in all wars, about what price people are willing to pay for victory. And it's easy to see in retrospect, oh, this was a war the North was always going to win. They had more men, they had more resources, they had all the industry, they had the railroads. And all of that is true. Those advantages were only important insofar as they could be brought to bear and insofar as the Northern public opinion was willing to bear the costs. And this wasn't clearly an existential war for the United States. I mean, it's like my sort of slightly facile analogy of Scotland leaving the United Kingdom. If the southern states had left the United States, the United States, you would think, well, would still exist, right? Or maybe there's another way. Maybe they'll separate for a while and then we can renegotiate. Do we have to fight a war to do this, right? That was always the question in Northern public opinion throughout the conflict. So that's the sense in which this was not a total war. There was never that complete, full-throated conviction that we absolutely have to throw everything at this never quite got to that point. The Harvard and Yale boat race continued throughout the war. So they were at least 16 able-bodied military-aged men who weren't in the Union Army. Oh, wow. And I'm sure there's so many class dynamics in that particular incident there that we don't have time to go into. You know, protect the elites while the rest of us go and get killed on the front lines. An age-old story in war. 
But also, you mentioned the fact that this starts off as, you know, trying to be what we'd now term as being proportionate and discriminate and trying to win hearts and minds. But it's a pretty common part of American history that that may well be the intent to start with in most wars that America fights. But in times of supreme emergency, when wars aren't going well, they usually descend into a point where you try and smash the fighting will of your enemy by any means possible. I think of the Second World War. You know, the US starts out with its precision bombing strategy, its air power strategy at the beginning. It tries to hit discriminate targets and avoid the enemy populace and their livelihood because they don't want to target civilians. It's not the American way of war. But by the end of the war, you've got the entire destruction firebombing of Tokyo and vast cities across Japan and, of course, the atomic bombs that are dropped to finally end the war. Now, when I look at those strategy documents, I see that this is very much an approach that is led by the generals within the US Air Force. Yes, it has some political decree being handed down, but actually quite quite a lot of the time, the President and the Secretary of War don't really know what is going on or what the generals are doing, just what they're being told. So can we take this model and apply it back onto the Civil War and ask, to what extent did Abraham Lincoln know what his generals are doing? To what extent was war a continuation of policy by other means handed down by the President? Or was this something that the generals really had control over? There's a lot of really interesting questions packed into what you've just said there. So the basic dynamic that you described I'm sure you're right in saying that there is an internal logic in all wars that particularly applies to the leadership of the army. And of course, there's a long and complex story in the United States, as in all polities, about the relationship between civilian and military leadership. And that's true in the Civil War, as in other conflicts. It's definitely true that the two generals I've already mentioned, Grant and Sherman, provided, if you like, a kind of strategic and tactical rationale for what was going on on the ground. And I think if Lincoln hadn't, as it were, in quotes, found a general who was prepared to implement that kind of strategy or who had developed the strategy themselves through experience in fighting in the West, actually. I mean, it wasn't that either Grant or Sherman came into the war thinking, right, this is how we're going to have to deal with these Southerners. It was through experience of fighting campaigns in the Mississippi. Valley. It would have been very difficult for Lincoln to impose that from his position as commander-in-chief as a civilian leader if the military hadn't wanted it and understood why they needed to do it and understood how to do it. But I wouldn't say, I mean, if the way you're describing the dynamic in relation to the war against Japan in the 1940s was that the dynamic that was driven by the Air Force and as it were, FDR and Truman were kind of being drawn along by the inexorable logic, as it were, of what their military advisors were telling them needed to be done in order to accomplish the goal of defeat of Japan. I don't think the analogy holds completely true in the American Civil War, because I think if anything, I would say the dynamic was almost like the other way around. And there's a famous moment in 1863, General Lee's army invades Pennsylvania and culminates in the Battle of Gettysburg, the 1st to the 3rd of July. And Lee's army, of course, is defeated, but it's in Pennsylvania, right? So it's in a northern state. In a way, the really interesting thing in the Battle of Gettysburg is not even the battle itself, is what happens immediately afterwards. What actually happens is that Lee manages an incredible logistical feat to get his arm and hundreds of people of colour who he has kidnapped in Pennsylvania, takes them back into Virginia, and thousands and thousands of hogs and cattle and sheep and other agricultural products that his armies have plundered in Pennsylvania, he gets it 
it all and virtually his entire army, including thousands of wounded soldiers back south of the river into Virginia. It's an incredible feat that Lee manages, especially since it starts raining on July the 4th. And so he's doing it on muddy roads. But the point I was going to make anyway is that General Meade, at that time as the commander of the Army of the Potomac, issues a message to his troops and telegrams Lincoln and basically says, hooray, the enemy is off our soil. And Lincoln is incandescent. The whole country is our soil, Lincoln is saying, right? There's a moment that springs to mind because it's the gulf between Lincoln's understanding of what was necessary to win the war and his leading general at that time was enormous. So if anything, the dynamic is coming from the president to the military rather than as you describe it in the Second World War the other way around. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, host of the new podcast, American History Hit. Twice a week, I'll be exploring stories from America's past to help us understand the United States of today. Join me as I head back in time to witness Thomas Jefferson write the Declaration of Independence, head to the battlefields during the Civil War, visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with English colonists, tour Central Park before it was Central Park, and a city in Tennessee which helped build the atomic bomb. From famous battlefields to secret cities, from familiar names to lesser known events, I'll speak with leading experts from across the United States and beyond to bring American history to life. Join me every Monday and Thursday for American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.
I know you've worked a lot on the cult around Abraham Lincoln and some of the legacies of his career-defining moments and how they go on to really shape the minds of other political thinkers back in the UK and around the world. Is it because of that decisive thinking, that clear vision, even after his death in 1865, and you gave the spoiler away, he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth, a Confederate sympathiser, I guess would be a way of describing him. Is it because of those characteristics that the legacy, the cult of Lincoln lives on? It's a big question there, James, right? So there's a lot of reasons for the significance of Lincoln in American memory and in global memory. You know, a lot of them have to do not so much with his military leadership per se, but to do with the cause for which people imagine that the war was being fought. But the two do come together in the following way. So let me take you to 1919, Westminster, in the heart of London. Ceremony takes place to unveil, just opposite the House of Parliament, a statue of Abraham Lincoln. David Lloyd George is Prime Minister, and Lloyd George has been brought up in Wales, obviously, as a huge admirer of Abraham Lincoln, who late 19th century Welsh people thought of as our Lincoln. So David Lloyd George turns to the American ambassador then. He says, he is ours, sir, just as much as he is yours, Abraham Lincoln. So why is that? So Lincoln's a working class man who rises to be a head of state. The quintessential democratic man, right? He embodies what David Lloyd George admires, what it's possible for ordinary working men. And it's all very gendered and very raced as well, of course. But he's not some kind of wussy liberal. He's a muscular liberal who is willing to use massive force when necessary in order to defend those liberal democratic ideas, which of course is exactly what Lloyd George thinks he's just done as British wartime leader in the Great War. I mean, Lloyd George, in embracing Lincoln and saying to the American ambassador, he is ours uh, just as much as yours. Lloyd George is praising himself. He, Lloyd George, thinks of himself a man who grew up not in a log cabin, but in a cottage in Wales and self-taught. And he was a lawyer, just like Lincoln was a lawyer. And he believes in democracy, just like Lincoln believes in democracy. And he fights a big war in order to defend it. But plenty of other people outside of the United States saw Lincoln in that way. When Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, that was already the way in which he was seen. So when the news of Lincoln's assassination reached Britain, there were huge public meetings, almost always organised by radical politicians. In Newcastle, Joseph Cowan, the great radical leader, organised a massive meeting on the town moor in Newcastle to adopt resolutions sympathising with the loss of President Lincoln, which they sent to the American minister in London. He was shot on Good Friday at the moment of his nation's triumph. So he was martyred in the cause for which he had spoken about. So I think we can safely say that some of Britain's greatest political leaders in modern times perhaps can owe something to Lincoln then, especially if in terms of David Lloyd George and the way he framed himself and saw himself and perhaps learnt from some of the lessons of Lincoln, ideologically or in other senses, about the militaristic determination to defend one's liberal democracy. And I'm sure there are many other leaders within Britain that can say they've been inspired by Lincoln. But let me ask you a little bit of a cheeky question and kind of put my Machiavellian hat on. Surely it also benefits these prime ministers, these leaders of Britain to frame themselves within the light of one of America's greatest presidents. Because by this point in time, Britain's starting to realise that it really needs the United States as a strong ally. 
Oh, sure. Yeah. And that was very much part of the public diplomacy that took place around the erection of the statue in 1919. It also is part of the reason why in the Second World War, Lincoln was very present in including in sort of official government propaganda. There's a Humphrey Jennings film called Words for Battle. It's a sort of eight or 10 minute film, which was designed to bolster support for the war shown in cinemas all around the country. I think the narrator is Laurence Olivier. But at the end of the movie, Olivier quotes from the Gettysburg Address. And the final image is the statue opposite the House of Parliament that I've just been talking about that was unveiled in 1919. So they're searching for a figure in 1941 who can embody the idea of this is the people's war as a war for democracy. And they find Lincoln more than any British figure. But as you say, that's also because, of course, they are desperate, require American support. In that period between 1917 and 1945, Lincoln was a really important figure in helping to cement an idea of an Anglo-American relationship. You see, for me, you're right, that was a rabbit hole, but it was a fascinating rabbit hole to go down. So let's crawl back out of that and zoom out a little bit. And perhaps you can tell us how this cult of Abraham Lincoln survives today. What is the impact of Lincoln on contemporary politics, if there is one at all? I was recently in Springfield, Illinois, which is Lincoln's hometown, just a couple of weeks ago, giving a lecture there. And associated with my lecture, organised by the same people, was a series of art installations. They'd commissioned the University of Illinois. Springfield had commissioned a lot of artists to make pieces of work that reflected something about Lincoln. Many of them had, unsurprisingly, given they're in Illinois, chosen to reflect on the sort of pervasiveness of Lincoln in popular culture. And sort of therefore, I think by implication, the kind of unknowability of him, you know, that he just becomes this sort of almost comic figure in the top hat with the beard that was never really fashionable, even at the time, and has never quite been fashionable since. And, you know, this sort of comedy tall guy, either that or this sort of marbled bronzed icon, but in either sense, a real live complex person. So, I mean, you know, you ask, how is he still a factor today? I mean, part of it is his image is so familiar, especially within the United States, but to an extent beyond. There are statues of Lincoln all the way around the world. Gandhi wrote about Lincoln in Latin America. There's a statue of Lincoln I saw in Havana. You know, there's Lincolns everywhere, but where does Lincoln still really exist? Well, go to the land of Lincoln, you know, go to Illinois, where he's on the number plates. But in the end, the reason why Lincoln was put up in the homes of Durham miners next to the lithographs of William Gladstone in the 1880s and so on, is that sense of Lincoln as the democratic man and the emancipator, of course. Is that lost? I don't know. I mean, it was clear to me, talking to people and looking at these art exhibitions in Springfield a couple of weeks ago, that Lincoln is obviously a target nowadays in 2022 America, insofar as, you know, if there's an idea that somehow he is the white man on the pedestal who's giving freedom to the slave, which is not actually how it happened, of course, but he has sometimes been constructed in that way. If that's what he is, then he's quite rightly a target, actually. I think he's much more complicated and interesting than that, but insofar as he's been held up as that kind of white emancipator, figure, then he's the target for that. 
And the other aspects of Lincoln, the Lincoln as the democratic man, I think have been lost because they don't seem to have the purchase in the 21st century. The notion that in a democracy, you need to make democratic citizens and that requires responsibility and a certain way of being, a commitment to a set of ideals that are both abstract, but also articulated in practice in an every day. You know, Lincoln was a very useful figure for late 19th century and early 20th century people in Britain as a kind of emblem. If we are democracy, what does that mean? How do we be as democratic citizens? Let's look at Lincoln as an ideal. That notion is very faint in our culture now. And you rightly mentioned the ending of slavery. And is that his main legacy? Of course, this is the Warfare podcast, and we all know why the Civil War was fought. It's directly linked to one another. But the extent to which when we see civil rights issues around the world or continuing within the United States, and we've seen the Black Lives Matter marches or continuing problems in places like South Africa, much like, I suppose, a Wilberforce figure in the UK, is Lincoln still seen as a bit of a beacon of light or an example to the cause out out there around the world in the 21st century. If anything, I think he's a target because of that association, just as Wilberforce is now a target. I mean, the days in which Wilberforce was held up as an icon have now disappeared. So the American Civil War was obviously fought about slavery. It wouldn't have happened if it hadn't been for slavery. The Confederate States seceded specifically because an anti-slavery president was elected. They made this very explicit in their secession ordinances. There is no other reason why the Civil War would have happened in the 19th century if it had not been for the existence of slavery. That is not the same thing, of course, as saying that everybody who fought on the side of the North North was anti-slavery, nor is it the same as saying that everybody in the South was a slaveholder, which of course they weren't. So the motivations behind people fighting was not the same as the reason why the war happened. Now, the important thing about Lincoln is not that he, in quotes, freed the slaves. He didn't free the slaves. Enslaved people largely freed themselves. Slavery is a really hard institution to maintain if you're a society at war, right? I mean, that may seem like an obvious point, but it's really worth thinking about in the context of thinking about the Civil War. A system based on enslavement is one that requires continual surveillance, obviously. It requires a strong state apparatus in order to enforce the system of enslavement. And think about what it was like in Virginia in 1861. Your state becomes a literal battleground and you have in the South pretty much a total mobilization of the white population in the South. Your capacity to maintain the slave system is at the very least severely compromised, right? So slavery was collapsing internally. There was massive numbers of refugees, hundreds of thousands of people were on the move in the South, formerly enslaved people, people of colour moving to safer areas seeking freedom. This was all happening. It wouldn't matter what Lincoln did, this was all happening, right? But Lincoln nevertheless did do things. Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, which didn't in itself emancipate slaves. It actually did technically emancipate a few thousand. When people say it didn't do anything, they're not completely right. But what it did do was to make absolutely clear, to remove any ambiguity about the fact that whenever the Union armies advanced, then enslaved people would be regarded as free when they were inside Union lines. Any ambiguity about that was over after the Emancipation Proclamation. So it made the ending of slavery a war aim in a way that hadn't been clear before. And the second thing that Lincoln did was that he used his executive influence to help the passage of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, which was the amendment that formally abolished slavery. And those two things together ensured that when the South was eventually defeated, slavery as a formal legal institution was defeated with it. There was no possibility that state laws could legally recognize property and man ever again after the passage of the 13th Amendment. So that's what Lincoln did 
in relation to slavery. And why did he do it? Well, he did think that slavery was wrong. I mean, he said in 1864, if slavery is not wrong, then nothing is wrong. And I do not remember when I did not so think and feel. And the documentary evidence supports that. He did always think slavery was wrong. He didn't always think slavery was the most important issue in the United States, though. Most of his early political career at the state level, as I've said, he thought that actually banking and increasing credit available to small business people was a rather more important issue and building canals and eventually building railroads. But he came to see, like millions of Northerners did, that slavery enabled the creation in the South of what Northerners, including Lincoln, called the slave power, an illegitimate aristocracy of people who were supported by slavery, who were corrupting the republic as a whole. And undermining the freedoms even of white northerners. And so Lincoln came to the view, and he articulated this extremely well, that because the cause of the war manifestly was slavery, the only way you could ever destroy the rebellion and ensure that the United States was reunited and remained reunited was to destroy what they called, 19th century phrase, the taproot of the rebellion. So you pull up slavery by its roots in order to ensure that the rebellion is killed and can never grow again. So beyond those two specific things, issuing the Emancipation Proclamation and using his influence to pass the 13th Amendment, what Lincoln also did was to articulate that the reason why slavery had to end was in order for the United States to survive. You know, Lincoln in 1858, when he first arrived on the national stage, as I said earlier, said a house divided against itself cannot stand. We must become all one thing or all the other, all slave or all free. In the end, what Lincoln did was to ensure that in that particular sense anyway, the house was no longer divided. And that his perception that only by destroying slavery ultimately could you really, really defeat the rebellion is one of his big political contributions. Now, he's far from the only person to think like that, but he was the president. And the fact that he as the president thought that and articulated that so effectively, that is the essence of his great contribution to Northern victory of the war. He gave it that anti-slavery meaning and ensured that slavery would never exist in the United States again. I mean, to have such vision, conviction, and the ability to implement such massive change, whether it be at a state level, and you mentioned kind of in passing the banking reforms or the railroads, you know, they're things that it takes a visionary leader to pinpoint within a local society to see what needs to be changed to make lives better. And then when you become president, if you can pinpoint those much larger issues that are undermining your nation state as a whole, then that also makes you a visionary. And perhaps that's where this cult of Abraham Lincoln lives on today. Adam, thank you so much for your time and for taking us into such detail about the life and the legacies of one of America's greatest presidents. You have to tell us, where can we read more about this? They can listen to my podcast, The Last Best Hope, with a question mark at the end, which is a podcast about America, but it uses as its title, one of Lincoln's phrases was America, the last best hope of Earth. And what my podcast does is to explore why anyone would ever think that and insofar as they have whether it's true wonderful and we'll put a link to your podcast in our show notes adam thank you so much for your time thank you james it's been a pleasure thanks for listening but before you go a reminder that you can now follow along online on twitter at history hit ww2 on Instagram at James Rogers History and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.